1: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
0: And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today's topic is prompted by some semi-recent matter in the news, but as you'll hear, it's going to be a familiar topic that we're going to approach in perhaps a less familiar way. And the topic is religion In America. But we're not going to explicitly be talking about the separation of church and state. We're going to be talking about this in a deeper kind of a manner. And to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, very recently, Representative Lauren Boebert called Representative Ilhan Omar a member of the jihad squad. I'm not going to go into great depth on that. I'm not going to actually repeat the entire diatribe there. But obviously, for a bunch of reasons, that Attracted a lot of attention, drew a lot of commentary, and and still hasn't really fully been resolved. A matter that happened back in November that raised my eyebrows, certainly, involved former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who gave a speech, which then appeared in various places online, basically calling for one religion in the United States. He was talking at a quote, reawaken America tour event at the cornerstone church in san antonio texas he said
2: so if we are going to have one nation under god which we must we have to have one religion one 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 nation under god and one religion under god right all of us together working together i don't care what your ecumenical service is or what you you are we have to believe that this is a moment in time where this is good versus evil
0: now as A person who would not be part of that one religion, that certainly raised my eyebrows. That is not a thing that I expect to hear from someone with former political power and I suppose potentially future political power. That feels dangerous to me. And that raises some of the issues that you and I, Heather, want to address today.
1: Yeah. And I want to just point out that one of the things that Flynn talks about in that speech, which was captured on video, was he says that this is important to talk about and foundations of this country are talking about because as he says
2: this is the shining city on the hill this is the city on the hill the city on the hill the city on the hill was mentioned in matthew okay it was mentioned in matthew and then a guy by the name of winthrop mentioned it again in 1630 in 1630 okay before the country was formed and he also coined the term new england we're going to go to this new england this new world he was talking about. And he talked to the people there about this thing called the city on the hill. And then Ronald Reagan, a couple hundred years later, again, talked about it as the shining city on the hill.
1: And they're talking about the United States of America. I always perk up when I see this quotation attributed to America as an example of God's favored land, because in fact, when John Winthrop gave that sermon, which was called A Model of Christian Charity in 1630, he was not saying that America was going to be the example to the rest of the world because it was a shining city on a hill. He was saying to the Puritans, Don't mess this up, because you will be as if you are exposed to the world with a light shining on you on the top of a hill, and everybody is going to see what happens if you screw up. This was a warning that the people settling from Europe in North America should be very careful of what they did, because people would be watching— as opposed to saying, hey, God's on your team and you're going to get this all right. And so when people misquote that to that degree, it always makes me very curious about what they're really up to.
0: (laughs) Right. And part of that also that's worth noting is the assumption there that people will be watching what is happening in these colonies is indeed because aspects of what was happening, the colonization effort, and there are really different efforts and different motivations and different ways of organizing the different colonies in this period, but aspects of them did have a degree of the experimental in them. So people were partly watching what was going on in this period, really literally to see how things would work out, how people would fare, what would happen in these colonies. And then increasingly over time, as the colonies came together, what was that going to result in?
1: And this is the part we're talking about this material that I was saying to you I absolutely love because, of course, one of the things that Europeans are looking at is what happens when European settlers try and interface with indigenous Americans, you know, in terms of their culture, in terms of their economies, and obviously according to their religions as well. But one of the things that I was saying I really wanted to emphasize this time around was to take a look at what was happening in the colonies religiously because... One of the things that always jumps out at me when we talk about colonial religions, and we just mentioned Puritanism, and of course there are any number of different religions we could be talking about, is many Americans don't know that in fact, after 1619,
0: there were a lot of Muslims in this country. So some scholars estimate that 20% of the enslaved men and women who were brought to the Americas were Muslims. And the lower- sort of estimate along those lines suggests that Muslims made up at least 900,000 out of the 12.5 million Africans taken to the Americas. Other researchers suggested that up to 40% of those who were captured and enslaved in the Americas came from predominantly Muslim parts of West Africa. So that's, that's a lot of people and that's a component that doesn't often get talked about.
1: And I love it. I love it when people try and reclaim American history and say, look, we were always, you know, Protestant Christians or whatever they put in that slot. And to be able to say, well, actually, from the very beginning, (laughs) before your people came, America had a significant Muslim population.
0: So one thing that I I know there's been discussion of semi-recently, and indeed, there's been a book published on it and, and public discussion of it, is the simple fact that Thomas Jefferson owned a copy of the Quran. Now, Jefferson is someone with widespread interest. I said Jefferson, and you didn't wince, Heather. (laughs) What's wrong with you? It's killing (laughs) me over here. (laughs) Okay, okay, thank you. I needed that. I needed that reassurance. But he did own a copy of the Quran. In some ways, you could say that that's not surprising. But what's interesting about it is he bought a particular translation he bought it in 1765, translated by someone named George Sale. And what Sale actually says in the introduction to the Quran is not really, I'm translating this so that people will have a sense of what an interesting volume this is. He basically says that what's in here is dangerous, is bad, and people need to know what's dangerous about it. So on the one hand, the Quran is there, people are reading it and they're thinking about it. On the other hand, right alongside that from the beginning is someone pointing to it and saying, I don't know, I don't know about that. And that's fascinating because in a sense, that's, that's a sort of double-sidedness that's there from the very beginning and that this thing that personally, I love the fact that Jefferson had that volume and he didn't necessarily buy it thinking, excellent, I'll read this and this will show me how horrible this is, but that was what inspired the translator. So one of the things
1: then that the founders have to do is figure out what to do about different religions, whether or not to establish a religion in the country. And that's a really interesting moment in the development of our constitution and what we think are rights in this country.
0: There's a debate very early on, and and there's certainly enough discussion of this and writing about this, about the place of religion in the United States and the separation of church and state, when you look at the founding period, when you look at the framing of the Constitution and the creation of the United States under that new Constitution, the Americans knew that they were creating a republic. And a republic is a distinctive form of a polity that obviously is not a monarchy, but it's distinctive in a few ways, one of which is it's grounded to an extreme degree on public opinion and the American people. So it it isn't relying on royal families and hierarchies along those lines. Republics are grounded on public opinion. And what that means is that the public needs to be, number one, educated and able to make decisions and able to understand their political system. Number two, they have to be moral enough to be able to be responsible in choosing leaders and basically upholding the republic. So from the very beginning of the United States under the Constitution, morality is seen as a vital political issue.
1: They decide to go ahead and make sure that there is not an established religion in the country. And that's really quite a deliberate decision on the part of people like Jefferson and like Madison. By the 1770s, you have the rise of itinerant preachers who are being jailed for preaching at the wrong time or preaching in ways that is not acceptable to the established church. And Madison starts to play around with the idea of tolerating other ideas. And then he goes a step further and he says, wait a minute, tolerating something implies that there is one way that's established and everything else is tolerated. And he starts to argue for the unalienable right of conscience that not only should the state, not have an established religion, but that it should, by definition, let every man answer to his own God in his own way. And that's a really astonishing
0: jump, really, I think, in this period, is it not? And it's no mistake that these kinds of statements and controversies are happening in the era of the American Revolution, just before it and just after it, that's a moment when people are talking about authority and government and sort of how that's going to break down. So certainly that's part of what Madison is doing here is thinking about that and thinking about setting precedents and what these kinds of precedents are going to do to shape whatever this new nation is going to be. Along similar lines, then this, this is a Madison statement, which is in some way sort of startlingly modern sounding given some of what we grapple with these days. He says, Who does not see that the same authority which can establish Christianity in exclusion of all other religions may establish with the same ease any particular sect of Christians? In exclusion of all other sects, that same authority which can force a citizen to contribute three pence only of his property for the support of any one establishment may force him to conform to any other establishment in all cases whatsoever. So he's worried about religion, but he's worried about also authority, government authority linking with religion. I can read a Jefferson quote that echoes that, which is a very famous one, but that gets at the similar idea. He notes this actually in notes on the state of Virginia, which is his you know the book, quote unquote, that he wrote, the only one that he wrote. And he says in there, the legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket or, nor breaks my leg. Same idea there is what authority does the government have?
1: And repeatedly, the early presidents emphasized that America would not have an established religion, in part because by not having an established religion, you would go ahead and be able to make sure that the different sects and the different factions all balanced each other out and left everybody with that right of conscience. And they do so really quite deliberately with, for example, Washington
0: and his reassurance to the Newport Jews, Washington actually, when he first becomes president in 1789, not long after that, he begins touring a little bit around the United States, basically to make himself seen, to sort of show that there's a president and it's a person and connect with, particularly places in the North, given that he's a Southerner. So um, in August of 1790, he goes to Newport, Rhode Island, and he speaks to the congregants of Toro Synagogue, who welcome him, and right. A letter to him, the congregation leader of the Toro synagogue, writes to Washington in the spirit of what's going to happen now and writes, deprived as we heretofore have been of the invaluable rights of free citizens, we now, with a deep sense of gratitude to the almighty disposer of all events, behold a government erected by the majesty of the people, a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance, but generously affording to all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship, deeming everyone— of whatever nation, tongue, or language, equal parts of the great governmental machine. Machine is as a very favorite way of people referring to government in this time period. So they're saying this is something different, this congregant is saying. And Washington agrees that toleration is important. Porton actually adopts sort of pseudo-biblical language to confirm, you know, in his words, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. And yes, that is in the Hamilton musical, which I must say, because I know some people out there are saying, that sounds familiar— But it's in this context that Washington utters it, which is the Jews will be safe here, that we're distinctly saying at the outset of this new country that there's a level of toleration and acceptance here that matters and that will shape the country itself.
1: They do the same thing with Muslims as well. When the U.S. negotiates a treaty with Tripoli, which is a Muslim nation in 1797, the treaty actually reads... As the government of the United States of America is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims, and as the said states never entered into any war or act of hostility against any They're using an old world for Muslim nation. It is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the countries. And then there's also in your field, Joanne, the Danbury letter as well, right?
0: Right. Again, we have Jefferson who becomes president in the election of 1800, is elected in 1801. And that, in that election, explicitly, because Jefferson has some very distinctive views about the Christian religion, you know, Jefferson is the person who essentially creates his own Bible. He goes through the Bible and cuts out, eliminates uh, the sort of miracle portions (laughs) of of it. Of course he he does.
1: Of course he figures he can write the Bible better than anyone else.
0: You have to realize, Heather, that that whenever I mention him, I'm just watching your face. I'm just (laughs) waiting to see, like, (laughs) when will it erupt? When will you erupt? And it's remarkable. And there's always, when I talk about this uh, with my students, and I say, how many of you heard of the Jefferson Bible? And most of them have not. And it's it's just the idea that he strips away the miracles and what he calls the priestcraft to pull the teachings that he feels are true to the Christian religion. But what that means, you know, in part because of his toleration and the fact that he pretty famously has, I suppose, what you could have called even in that time period, somewhat radical views about Christianity, that when he's running for president, the Federalists, who um, are very much bound up with what Jefferson would have called priestcraft, the New England clergy, they pull out all the stops and they claim that, you know, Jefferson's coming for Christianity. Jefferson's going to steal your Bibles. Jefferson is an infidel. Choosing Jefferson for president will be a crisis. There's A Dutch reformed clergyman from New York who, just to give you a sense of the kind of language they're using, says, "...let the first magistrate be a professed infidel, and infidels will surround him. It is certain that infidelity leads to licentious manners, and those again to the destruction of all social order and happiness." And then he goes on to talk about um, how the voice of the nation calling a deist to the first office must be construed into no less a rebellion against God. So that's the kind of ranting and raving and extreme emotion that's attached to Jefferson becoming president because of religion. So in that spirit, when he becomes president, the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut writes him a letter basically complaining about infringement on their religious liberty by their state legislature. And they basically write and say, what religious privileges we enjoy as a minor part of the state of Connecticut, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of free men. And Jefferson basically responds by promising, there will be a wall of separation between church and state. Or to quote him a little bit here, this is a very Jefferson-heavy episode, Heather. I'm so sorry. But, you know, occasionally it has to happen. Well, I've teed it up because he is actually quite important, I think, for this. He is. He is. Because of what he thinks and because of the way in which he's very bluntly stating it in moments and on occasions and to people where it matters. And not everyone is willing to do that on the topic of religion in this time period. So he writes to the Danbury Baptists in um, January of 1802 and says, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, Make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. A really powerful, strong, direct statement issued as he first really is in the very beginning of his presidency to people who are wondering about how their rights are going to be affected by what becomes a real switch in the direction of government.
1: I have to let you tell what else happened on the day that he wrote the letter to the Danbury Baptists.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite things. I do. I have to say it is in history. I just love it. On the same day in 1802 that he writes his response to the Danbury Baptists, he receives what was known at the time as a mammoth cheese from the Baptists of Cheshire, Massachusetts. Now, the reason it's called a mammoth cheese, and it's, it's initially called that to make fun of Jefferson, is because he famously believed that there were woolly mammoths probably wandering around in the North American in the West. Part of his continued belief that American animals are bigger than European animals and superior to European animals, and a great example of that would be these woolly mammoths wandering around. So he's kind of made fun of as the guy who believes in mammoths, he's the mammoth president. And his supporters sort of brilliantly take that and say, yeah, he is the mammoth president. And these Baptists create a mammoth cheese, which is about 1,200 pounds, huge round cheese that they put in a cart and cart from Massachusetts to, by this point, Washington, Washington. And it's a huge event. You know, when you look at newspapers in the period, there's great attention being paid to the progress of the mammoth cheese. There's commentary being made on the fact that, you know, by the time it gets to Washington, you could smell the cheese coming. It's been traveling for quite some time. Um, It's meant to be a tribute to Jefferson. And it, again, it's from these Baptists. And embossed on the cheese is a motto that is popular with Jefferson that is rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So the Baptists create this massive cheese, send it to Washington. Jefferson would have regular showings of the cheese. He was very proud of the cheese when he had dinners in the White House. Sometimes he would put a piece of the cheese on the table. There's my cheese. (laughs) The American people love me. Here's my cheese. Do they eat the cheese? Indeed. And so this is the thing that I found when I was working on my first book was a congressman who has dinner at the white house in 1805 so recall that 1802 it is now fine years years aged cheddar way aged cheddar that it's apparently at the table and this new hampshire congressman says i think we were expected to eat it and so he did eat a piece of it and and this is a quote from him quote it was far from being very good <laughs> So what I love about this is it's such an over-the-top, and yet in the spirit of the time, look, tribute to Jefferson, a cheese, a big cheese. And it was taken in that spirit, and yet you just, there's something so fundamentally ridiculous about the idea, even though the tribute itself meant something because it's it's Americans, and in this case, Baptist Americans, paying tribute to the new president. That's a, That's an important moment, but it is also a big cheese.
1: Okay, so that was totally a rabbit hole, but it was a cool rabbit hole. But what I was really hoping to get you to talk about was that, you know, we've really emphasized how there is a deliberate separation of church and state amongst the framers for very obvious reasons, and they stand very strongly on that. But, like you were saying before, they also believe that this country needs to be uniquely moral which is weird. I mean, it's weird to have the separation of church and state so you can't have religion in government and you can't have government messing with religion. But at the same time, now let's talk about morality because morality is also at the backbone of America despite the separation of church and
0: state. Absolutely. The fact that Americans need to be very sort of aggressively moral for the American republic, a democratic republic, to survive is something that's discussed A lot at the time. It's one of the reasons why education becomes very important in that time period because education is going to be part of what will create good Americans who will be moral Americans and who will be able to uphold what they need to uphold to keep the country going. It's part of why actually motherhood takes on a great political importance because mothers are seen as people who can instill the right morals in their children again to make them good American citizens that will uphold the American Republic. So morality is seen as a political bulwark, as something that's going to hold the nation together. But what does it mean to be moral in 1790 or 1810? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously it involves virtue, but when you probe it pretty deeply, you run into all kinds of barriers and and all kinds of complications and all kinds of haziness, because how do you describe virtue or morality? Does it necessarily involve religion in some way? Well, it might. It doesn't by definition. So I'm guessing morality meant working hard. That would have been part of it. Would have been working hard. Would have been being a person of good reputation and upholding your word. The reason
1: that I'm pushing on that is because in the 19th century, there is, of course, a wide range of reform movements. And one of the the key pieces of that comes from the early evangelical movements, which is the idea of having a pure relationship with God. And the trick to having a pure relationship with God is making sure that there is nothing in the material world that stands between you and a pure relationship with God. And so you get in the middle of the 19th century, all of these moral reform movements that are based not in, for example, the idea of making your community work better, or in the idea of helping your children grow up better, but rather in the idea of clearing the way for an individual to be pure and moral enough to have a good relationship with God. And the reason that I'm harping on that is because one of the major moral reform movements of the 19th century, or or most of them actually in the 1830s and the 1840s, are designed to remove external conditions that are preventing individuals from having that kind of a maximum, if you will, relationship with God. So you have, of course, the nutritional movement that is designed to help make sure people aren't poisoning their bodies with chemicals. And in those cases, they don't mean sort of artificial chemicals, but with the wrong kinds of food. And there are all kinds of movements through that in the 19th century, where people alter their diets to try and be purer. They try and uh, and clean up different aspects of the way they live. There's a movement that is designed to try and release people from mental illness, because of course, they don't understand mental illness at the time. There's the idea of making sure people are not bound by the laws in such a way that stunt their ability to have this pure life, if you will. And by pure, I don't mean necessarily moral so much as a way to not be stunted in your desire to become the best you can be to have this relationship with God. And the one that really jumps out, of course, is temperance. Because when the framers are talking about morality, they're drinking like fish! (laughs) It's true. (laughs)
0: It's very true. There's a huge, huge amount of, of drinking, which also is bound up with politics, right? I mean, elections, you run for office by plying your constituents with vast amounts of alcohol. So indeed, there's some hard drinking. And what's distinctive or interesting about or what links temperance with some of what the other things you've just mentioned, Heather, just to give you an idea about what we're talking about here when we're talking about drinking... In 1820, an adult normally drank seven gallons of alcohol a year. Whiskey was a particularly popular spirit, in part because it was cheap, cheaper than beer, wine, coffee, tea, or milk. People often preferred alcohol to water because water wasn't necessarily clean in this period, but alcohol was trustworthy. It's hard to exaggerate the degree to which there was hard drinking going on in this period. In all levels of society, there's very early on in the 19th century, you get the Congressional Temperance Union, right? So even in Congress, people are thinking they're drinking so much that they're, they're lying across their desks as they're talking. They're sloshed in Congress. They're very sloshed, very sloshed. It's a huge issue. And it's, again, gets back to this idea of choice. The rate at which American men were consuming alcohol in the early republic hits on
1: the issue of morality. And by 1826, the nation has its first formal national temperance organization. And temperance in this period literally meant that, to temper the amount of alcohol you drank, not to abolish it altogether. But the people who join the temperance movement are very concerned about the effects on society of the extraordinary amounts of alcohol men are working because they're not working, or they're getting supporting their families, or they're getting injured because they're drunk on the job, or they're going home and and abusing their wives and children. So there is this sense that the personal morality of these men who are drinking, like everybody else is in this period, is destroying the community, is destroying the countryside. So um, prominent people clergymen uh, and people in communities begin to call first for temperance and then for total abstinence from any kind of distilled liquor. And this idea springs up in the early republics. So by 1829 there are 222 state and local anti-liquor groups spreading this message across the country and by 1835 about 2 million Americans had pledged to abstain from hard liquor and these are going to be primarily men women were not most women were not drinking the same sort of collegial way that men were and this bleeds into some of the other reform movements through people like Lyman Beecher, who's part of that very famous Beecher family of ministers in the middle of the 19th century that's going to include Harriet Beecher Stowe, in which he advocates for temperance and publishes a bunch of sermons on, as he says, the nature, the occasions, the signs, the evils, and the remedy of intemperance, and calls again for the idea of American ceasing to drink. And I'm laughing because when I did my first research project, I was in a 19th century library and they, they were temperance people and there was an entire wall of these pamphlets about what drinking would do to you. And in most of them, you could spontaneously combust, which I thought was really interesting. But my favorite was Ten Nights on a Barroom Floor. And I will tell you, as we're recording this, (laughs) that I have a copy. I bought a copy, the first time I saw it, of Ten Nights in a Barroom Floor. And it's on the wall behind me here. Because that whole genre of, if they're sort of gothic, you're destroying the country by drinking. And this push for morality in the 19th century becomes uh, a way for women to mobilize into the political system and to advocate their own uh, power, like you were saying the mothers were before. And increasingly, people emphasize the idea of not being enslaved to alcohol. So by the 1840s, drinking dropped to half of what it had been in the 1820s. And in 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, is founded in Cleveland, Ohio, where women took to the streets and held pray-ins outside local saloons to demand that liquor no longer be sold. And within three months, they had driven liquor out of 250 communities. You've probably seen the images of women breaking into barrels of alcohol with axes. And in 1879, the WCTU elected Frances Willard to be its president. And she remains the president of the WCTU until 1898 and becomes incredibly influential in talking about the role of Christians in going ahead and cleaning up American society. So here you have this whole idea of morality and Christianity outside the established church going ahead and making America be a moral nation.
0: That's a heady combination of things, that it's reform, it's patriotism, it's morality, it's religion, it's Christianity, it's the public good. It's all of these things bound together and, as you just suggested, Heather, bound up with the fact that these reform movements are a way for women to be very openly and organizationally political. So it has that component built into.
1: Well, and the reason that I set that up to the degree I did was because, of course, the Beechers and many of the other people involved in things like the temperance movement were also advocating for the end of human enslavement, which is, again, a way to make sure individuals can have a relationship with God without external impediments to that. The connection between, for example, temperance and abolition and government becomes really important after the Civil War because having achieved at first, before the war, a uh, reduction in drinking and having achieved the abolition of human enslavement except as punishment for a crime and for which somebody has been duly convicted, a lot of religious people started to say, hey, we're clearing the way. Look how moral we are. We're clearing the way to make America a Christian nation. And that's another moment in American history that a lot of people don't know about. But in the 1860s, Presbyterian lawyer from Pennsylvania, a man named John Alexander, introduced an amendment to the Constitution at a religious convention of a number of Protestant groups that were meeting in Ohio. And he wanted to acknowledge, as he said, the rulership of Jesus Christ and the supremacy of the divine law in
0: the U.S. Constitution. I just have to say, think about that sentence. Rulership of Jesus Christ and the supremacy of the divine law in the U.S. Constitution. That's quite a telling phrase. And doesn't it echo what
1: Michael Flynn said? Or doesn't he echo that? You know, the the idea of this being a Christian nation? It's true. So they wanted to change the preamble of the Constitution in which they said, we, the people of the United States, as it starts now, Humbly acknowledging Almighty God as the source of all authority and power in civil government, the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler among the nations, his revealed will as the supreme law of the land in order to constitute a Christian government. And then it goes back to, and in order to form a more perfect union. And and then it goes on, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the inalienable rights and the blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to ourselves and our posterity and all the people, and then go ahead and do ordain this constitution. And it, at first, got some attention and got some, actually, abolitionists to sign onto it, as well as some other people as well. And then in 64, they organized as the National Reform Association, once again, reform there with the acronym, the NRA, which cracks me up. Anyway, they try and get Lincoln to sign on to the amendment and he expresses some reservations about that. Lincoln would, I think, never go along with something like this. And he stalls. He says, I must ask time to deliberate. But they go ahead and grow in influence in the 1870s after the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution. They claim to have 30 local chapters. They're organization newspaper known as the Christian Statesman had 10,000 readers, and they really seized on the growth of religious minorities like the Catholics coming in from Southern and Eastern Europe, Jews, Seventh-day Adventists, to say that these groups were challenging the America's Christian heritage and that there needed to be an amendment to the Constitution to go ahead and make sure America was itself established as a Christian nation. In early 1874, they got a series of hearings before the House Judiciary Committee to plead their case, and the committee basically turned them down. They issued a blanket statement in February of 1874 saying, "...upon examination even of the meager debates by the founders of the Republic in the convention which framed the Constitution they that is the members of the committee find that the subject of this memorial was most fully and carefully considered and then in that convention decided after grave deliberation to which the subject was entitled that could they have had more i know clauses here <laughs> that as this country the foundation of whose government they were then laying was to be the home of the oppressed of all nations of the earth whether Christian or pagan, and in full realization of the dangers which the union between church and state had imposed upon so many nations of the old world with great unanimity that it was inexpedient to put anything into the constitution or frame of government which might be construed to be a reference to any religious creed or doctrine.
0: Now, I have to say, all of those clauses, that is a very carefully phrased statement that's that's bolstering itself with the founders and including lots of padding until that last phrase that just says outright what they're declaring. So they're turning this down, but boy, they're showing you the seriousness with which they're considering it because it's a charged issue.
1: And at the same time, they're like, nah, not happening because right. they know very well what <laughs> exactly- they're saying that in such a polite way. Yes. This public morality- did in fact lead to people wanting to say in our foundational documents that America was a Christian country. And lawmakers looked at that and said, yeah, no, we're not doing that. And a similar thing happens after World War II where Americans are trying to distinguish themselves from international communism, which they see as godless and immoral. So they start to write into our public spaces the idea of, A sort of generic morality
0: by focusing on God. And precisely worth noting that they're talking about God, but they're not giving that God a name. They're not using organized religion. They're just invoking again and again the idea that Americans look to God and that God looks to America as opposed, as
1: they would say, to what it was doing with the USSR or with the Communist Party in China, which is what they're really concerned about. And so when we talk, for example, about the Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag of the United States of America, one nation under God, indivisible, and with liberty and justice for all. And it always bothers me because when that was written in the late 19th century, it was one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, which was a reflection of Reconstruction. You can't divide this country and we're actually going to have liberty and justice for Black Americans as well as for white Americans. But in 1954, because Eisenhower was really trying to undercut the extreme anti-communists in the country, especially in his own Republican Party, he goes ahead and he tries to bow to them by adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and to a Reconstruction story. And it always bugs me because you lose that phrase, one nation under God, indivisible. And it's like, no,
0: no, 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 it's one nation indivisible. Like, at least put it after that, but they didn't. But here's what's what's interesting about that too, though, is that that in one way describes our Pledge of Allegiance as a blend between post-Civil War response to slavery and the abolition of slavery and communism. Talk about an interesting combo of things to be part of our Pledge of Allegiance. In that way, it's it sort of weirdly, peculiarly American. It binds together (laughs) thoughts about slavery and communism by the United States. Well, but it's also
1: an interesting blend as well in the fact that the Pledge of Allegiance is not part of our laws. It's not part of anything except it was a poem written in the 1890s. So the idea that he's going to insert God into what sure sounds like it's part of our government, but it's really not, is very much an Eisenhower kind of sleight of hand. And they go a step further in 1957 when they begin to use the words in God we trust on paper money. Now it had been on coins since the Civil War because there was an attempt during that period to show how the Union was invoking God's will by defending the United States of America. But it had never appeared on paper, and it appears on paper in 1957 as part of this idea of America being particularly moral as opposed to the communist governments. And yet it's a step closer to making that part of established government policy because, of course, our money is government money.
0: That's an issue or a fear That in and of itself goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation when they worried a lot about what would appear on coins, what would appear on money, because they assumed whatever images or words appeared on money would sort of work their way into the American consciousness and shape the nation. So that similar kind of a spirit is worming its way through this as well. Just
1: think about it, especially in the days before modern media, if you are carrying a bill that's got a saying or a face on it before widespread television, for example, that's one of the images you will see most in your life is what's on that piece of paper. It is literally an advertisement. So putting that in God we trust on the money is significant in 1957. But then there is the really interesting question of when presidents begin to explicitly claim God for America. So they're all talking religiously, and we've danced around this question before, but in sort of a generic way. So who is the first president to say God bless America at the end of a speech?
0: And I just don't think people would guess this. Really? I think people would assume this is older than it is. The first president to say God bless America at the end of a speech is Richard Nixon. And it comes during an Oval Office address that's focused on the Watergate scandal. And he announces the resignation of three administration officials. And at the end of the speech, he says,
2: I looked at my own calendar this morning up at Camp David as I was working on this speech.
1: It showed exactly 1,361 days remaining
2: in my term. I want these to be the best days in America's history. Because I love America, I deeply believe that America is the hope of the world. Tonight, I ask for your prayers to help me in everything that I do throughout the days of my presidency to be worthy
1: of their hopes and of yours. God bless America, and God bless each
2: and every one of you.
1: And then I love the fact that Gerald Ford doesn't do it because he's probably appalled by the whole thing. But Jimmy Carter also avoids the phrase. And Jimmy Carter is himself a devout Christian. And he refuses to mix church and state. Carter does. And of course, Ronald Reagan constantly used it to me, it's funny you say that people would be surprised that it was Nixon who began using that phrase, and I was actually like, of course it was Nixon, because Nixon, by 1973, is so embattled, and he recognizes that he has lost so many of his more moderate supporters that he is doubling down on religious voters. You know, it's it's actually in right before the election of 1972 that he begins to turn against abortion. Until then, he has been doing the Republican line on abortion, which is that it's, it's a medical issue. And he starts really to double down on this idea of trying to pick up especially disaffected Democratic Catholic voters by hitting on God again and again and again. And Reagan does the exact same thing. And you can really see it in the fact that from the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt in 1933— which, you know, a lot of people say is the beginning of the modern presidency, until the end of Carter's term in January of 1981, there were 229 major presidential addresses. And the only time anybody said, God bless America, was the thing you just said from Nixon. But from Reagan's inauguration in 1981 through the six year mark of the Bush administration, there were 129 major presidential speeches, and they said, God bless America or God bless the United States 49 times. Like there's this injection of this idea that America is going to be this moral anti communist nation. And here it is walking on its little feet right into our executive branch, and pretty soon, into voting and into the legislative branch as
0: well. So now we swing back. We're sort of merging together morality and religion. So now we shift to 1979 and a phrase certainly that will be familiar to many and an organization that will be familiar to many, and that is the moral majority, Now, The Moral Majority is founded in 1979 by Jerry Falwell, who's a Baptist minister and a religious broadcaster from Lynchburg, Virginia. And he founds it as an explicitly political organization dedicated to advancing, quote, a pro-life, pro-family, pro-morality and pro-American agenda. Membership in that organization surges in the summer of 1980. It opens offices in Washington, D.C., and in just one year, gains 83,000 new addresses for its mailing list. Now, Falwell himself had been sort of merging religion and politics for a while. He launched an evangelistic campaign with a kind of a political edge during the bicentennial era. He had what he called I Love America rallies with patriotic music and choirs. By the end of the 1970s, his TV program had expanded, was on 373 stations, more than Johnny Carson's Tonight Show appeared on, and membership at his Thomas Road Baptist Church also was soaring in this time period he found the name for his organization from his Lieutenant Paul Weyrich, who basically uttered this phrase during a really early planning session. He said, out there, there is a moral majority, but it has been separated by denominational and historical differences.
1: What's interesting about the timing of this is he is picking up the anti-communism, of course, but one of the things he's also picking up is those Americans who feel that the modern world has left them behind. And in 1970, Time Magazine had lionized these people as middle Americans. And the way they represent themselves is that they are frustrated by the taxes that they are paying, that they see going to grasping minorities and feminist women and people who want to have, as they would say, abortions on demand. And so while this idea of morality... Is really an idea of going back in the past to times before the the civil rights movements of the 1960s, for example, and the idea of women working outside the home. He's tying together all these different ideas of traditional America and traditional religion and anti-communism, and all of those wrapped up in this bow of morality. But then there is this really important moment, and that's that In many periods, and certainly before this period in the 20th century, there had been a move among church people not to vote with the idea that voting was separate than church, that if you got involved in politics, it was going to corrupt your morality. But what the moral majority is, is it says, no, 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 we need to harness that morality and move it into politics. And this is the moment when that evangelical motion of the late 1960s and the early 1970s becomes an explicitly political motion that's going to move that morality back into the idea of politics and back into the idea of, the, of having the church
0: actively involved in the states. And in a really explicitly political way, to the point that this is what Falwell says blatantly about what he wants the moral majority to do: we have to lead the nation back to the moral stance that made America great. We need to wield influence on those who govern us. That's a that's a <laughs> that's a new way of putting this. That's a very explicitly political agenda. He goes on at more length along those lines in a 1980 publication that he wrote called Listen America, uh, in which he says, we must reverse the trend America finds herself in today. Young people between the ages of 25 and 40 have been born and reared in a different world than Americans of years past. The television set has been their primary babysitter. From the television set, they have learned situation ethics and immorality. They have learned a loss of respect for human life. They have learned to disrespect the family as God has established it. So there are the goals. That's the the sort of political merging of religion and and politics as an explicit political agenda with an organization that is going to work to fuel this agenda very aggressively in a way that certainly caught on. In October
1: 1980, the evangelical president, Jimmy Carter, had this to say about the moral majority— there's been a high degree of publicity given in recent months to the so-called moral majority. As a matter of fact, Reverend Jerry Falwell, the leader of the moral majority, habitually and weakly, even more often during the 1976 campaign, castigated me severely and was one of my most difficult opponents or critics. He hasn't changed. There are some issues on which I disagree strongly with his basic philosophy or approach to government or religion. I don't think there ought to be any religious test for political acceptability, and I don't think there ought to be any political test for religious fellowship. I believe that the people will make a sound judgment recognizing the necessity for the separation of church and state. How'd that go? (laughs)
0: Well, yes, that separation of church and state thing maybe didn't swim in quite the way he might have wanted it to. But what's interesting here about this evolving conversation that we're having, Heather, is the way in which government, authority, religion, morality, and patriotism are being sort of bounced around and pulled together and pushed apart in a lot of different ways, in part because there's – Flexibility because things aren't established, because there's room for this kind of manipulation by people who can see and advance different agendas, taking advantage of that flexibility. So, from
1: that point on, the Republican Party increasingly relied on the movement of religious voters, especially evangelical voters, into the party to go ahead and shore that party up until we got to the point whereby the election of 2020, 81% of evangelicals vote for Donald Trump, who's a Republican and who on paper sure doesn't look like a terribly moral human being. I mean, he is famous for uh, his untoward business deals. He's on record talking about sexually assaulting women I mean, there's just a list of things in which you could say he probably is not at least Thomas Jefferson's ideal of a moral American, certainly not Harriet Beecher Stowe's version of a moral American. And yet, the evangelicals have lined up behind him in a way as our producer was saying very effectively, in a way taking morality and saying morality doesn't matter anymore so long as we can inject it back into the state and get rid of the idea of the separation of church and state. So this whole idea of the separation of church and state from the discussion of morality once again seems to have bled together in this modern moment where now you have people like Michael Flynn once again talking not only about reestablishing the idea of one God and one nation, but also how that is explicitly tied to taking over the government with that kind of establishment of religion within it. So once again, this whole idea of the separation of church and state on the one hand, which is what the framers designed this country to be based on, is under assault from the other part of what they had talked about so much, which was morality. And the weaving together of those two different concepts throughout our history has often brought us to a place where we have to once again battle for the idea of the separation of church and state. Our conversation
0: continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as
1: we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com/slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history.
0: That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network.